This is Josiah Meyer, uh, who already introduced him Canada. I'm going to let him share what he's going to share. But let me just uh, pray. Feel free to get up and keep eating dessert. Uh, Betty, from heaven. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, dessert. Oh. I was told it was you. You do. Oh, the eclair cake? The eclair. That was magical. I'm getting more. I have everything, but but I can have more of that one. <laughs> yes, you can. It's not bad. Oh, I'm sure it's not. Oh, wow. You can use it, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you, everyone, for coming and, and for sharing your food. This is great. So let me pray for Josiah, and then we'll begin. Father in heaven, I just lift Josiah up to you now, and I thank you for his willingness to come down, to leave his family, uh, to join us for this conference, and to share his heart. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to what he is sharing. Lord, that you would give him your words. And if there's any part of his presentation that you want to just shift and go in a different direction, I pray that you would hear your voice and follow your lead. May we have ears to hear what you have for us tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Use that any way you like. (laughs) Maybe I'll talk into it then. Well, thank you all for having me. I'd like to uh, start off by reading... A bit of a lengthy passage here from 2 Corinthians. Working together with him, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6. Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. So at this point, he says, everything we do, we need to show ourselves as servants of God. And then he's going to share what is a servant of God. What does it look like? In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things." So Garrett uh, asked me to share a little bit of our missionary journey. Um, Actually, I'm going to share pretty much all of it, or try to. Um, And he really encouraged me to share, what is it really like? What's the behind the scenes? Uh, What's the the, uh, deleted scenes? Because honestly, when we send out our our newsletter, we, we share, this is the good stuff. This is the success. Everybody's good. Everybody's smiling for the camera. Um, But the reality is that serving God is hard. And uh, so um, I couldn't use each one of these things in this passage, uh, imprisonments, joyful, sorrowful, as a a heading for uh, my talk. Um, But as I go through the journey, and I've got six different stages that I talk about, um, that I've identified as part of our journey, I want to talk about the passion what, how God grabbed my heart and pulled me this direction. And I want to talk about the pain and be really honest about some things that were hard during that season. And then about the progress and how God, how I saw God working and how I saw there was fruit, uh, although 
uh, sometimes it was hard time coming. So um, I can't, you know, as I get to the hard things, I can't say that anybody pushed me into missions. It was really my decision. Uh, and I remember very clearly as a child of eight years old, I was listening to Patch the Pirate, and uh, I don't know if anybody else has ever heard of Patch the Pirate, but it's a thing we used to listen to. And there was um, an episode where they go to the jungle and meet a missionary, and wow, I'm starting to cry already. This isn't going well. Um, and uh, there's this little boy that sings, Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. I will serve you faithfully. Here am I, Lord, send me. Only it was more in tune when they did it on the CD, on the tape. Um, and as an eight-year-old boy, I felt like God was calling me to be a missionary. Uh, and I didn't want to go because I said, God, there's snakes and spiders in Africa, and I'm scared. And... I wrestled with it for a few days, and then I felt like, okay, God um, made the snakes and spiders. He can take care of me. He'll keep me safe. And from that point on, I never, it was a done deal. God's got my life. Um, what that's going to look like, whether that means being a pastor, whether that means being a Bible school teacher, thought I'd be a rock star at one point. Um, but God's got my life, whatever shape that looks and uh, at a certain point, you know, we went to Bible school, and then I went to seminary, um, met my wife, had a few kids, came back. We were serving in our local church, um, and uh, we got a call from a missionary that said, you know, you really ought to come over to Africa as a teacher. And at this point, we had really seen that I had a gift of teaching, which is why I was moving towards being a Bible school teacher. Um, but what this missionary said is there's so much need for teachers over in Africa to teach the next generation of um, missionaries or of, of pastors and of teachers. And so at that point, we felt like it, this is right. Uh, we raised our support. Uh, we sold our house. We um, got ourselves pointed towards um, learning French so that we can go to Africa. Now, obviously, there were things that were hard. We knew they would be. Um, it was hard to sell our house. It was hard to say goodbye to friends. Um, but we were on an adventure, and we were, we were excited. This is, feels like a long time ago now. This was, this was five years ago when we were, were young and idealistic. <laughs> um, and uh, we, we raised our support in just eight months, and we sold and moved our house, and we were gone. And we showed up in Sherbrooke, Quebec, to learn French. Um, and we were excited to be there because this was my wife's hometown. Uh, funny story, when, when she went to uh, sign up at the hospital to give birth, she didn't have to change her address or her name because in, in Quebec you don't change your last name. And we were actually studying at the same place that her dad was studying at when, uh, when she was born. So anyways, we came back to her roots. Um, and it's a really neat culture in Quebec. We got to... Um, experienced that and my wife's extended family was there that we got to do St. Jean-Baptiste fe festivals and Cabin uh, Sucre and other cool things and also it was just so warm I mean if you can believe it we were almost as far south as you are so it was a real treat for us uh, northerners to come that far south that was supposed to be a joke um, but seriously I, when we arrived I took a, a walk in the bush and there was running water in January and I just thought where are we because I'm from quite a ways north. 
uh, if you know where Red Lake, Ontario is, um, north of Thunder Bay. Anyways, um, but this season ended up being quite a bit more painful than we thought. In fact, this is, in some ways, the most difficult season was language school, and part of what made it so hard was what we weren't expecting it. Um, it, Language school is kind of one of these, oh yeah, moments in most missionaries' lives, where you're so passionate about getting to the field and saving people from hell and preaching the gospel, and you got your mind all wrapped around the difficulties that are going to happen over there. And then there's just this little thing about learning the language first. It's like, oh, well, we'll, we'll deal with that, you know. Um, but it took us a year and a half. It was a significant amount of time. And it was kind of, um, you know, technically we weren't missionaries yet as far as the mission was concerned. Technically we weren't doing anything cool. Um, and it was, it, it was a difficult time. It was uh, a significant loss of identity. I mentioned we were involved in our local church and I was known as the worship director and I was often preaching and people really said I I did a great job and had this gift of teaching. But nobody knew that at language school. Um, My wife had a a bakery where, a home bakery where she would just advertise on Facebook, hey, I'm making bread. And she would have people beating down her door to get her bread and she would just be able to sell whatever she wanted and as much as she wanted. But nobody knew she was a baker and nobody knew she was a hostess. We were just... Nobody, just students. Um, There was a loss of um, career. I had a direction that I was going to go to be a a Bible school teacher, and I was going to write articles, and I was going to get known, and I was going to publish, and and all that stuff just kind of went out the window, because now we're going to French, and when am I ever going to be eloquent enough in French to ever publish anything? I'm still not. Um, A loss of language, and this is something that I had no idea about but if you ever want humility, who here wants to be more humble? I mean, we all struggle with pride. Learn a language. <laughs> that, you will never be humbled like, like learning a language. Because it literally, the process literally takes you all the way down to where all you can say is goo goo gaga. And that's where you start. When you think about kids, you know, the first thing they do is they make the basic sounds in the language, right? Goo goo ga ga da da da. Right? And Chinese kids are saying other things because it's a different language they're hearing. And they won't try and imitate that because that would sound odd. Um, but that's where you start. And I went from somebody that had a blog where people were reading me and people, you know, it was getting bigger and bigger and I was getting known, all the way down to where I couldn't even say, you know, isn't it a nice day today? You know, I could say, where's the bathroom? But I couldn't say, you know, what I wanted to say. And I found that tremendously difficult. Um, as well, the loneliness, which became a theme throughout this journey, really settled in. Um, there wasn't a lot of support from our, our support group, although they're a great group of people. But we kind of... We kind of pumped them up to support us once we got there. Uh, And we kind of felt awkward about this in between time. And we weren't asking for the support that we needed. And the mission kind of as well kind of treated it as an in-between time. We were going to a church. uh, We were, you know, in class with people. Uh, We made some good connections with other students, but they kept leaving. And uh, the locals had kind of become a little bit jaded to all these missionaries coming through, staying for a few months, and then leaving. And... They just were, people were kind of closed. They didn't really want to get to know us. And they didn't really want their kids to get to know our kids, honestly, uh, because they saw the tearful goodbye coming. And I mean, I can understand that. 
but it was a very lonely time, and especially for the kids. My wife already knew French, and so she wasn't in school, and so it was even harder for her because she was isolated. Nobody knew her. There was nobody, nothing to do. Um, And my oldest son went from a place where he had playdates and he had church and he had he was surrounded by kids and, and fun and fellowship and you know generations of friends like I was friends with somebody who's you know got kids and those kids are now playing with my kids like just you know multi-generational been in the same community for a long time for 20 years before I left to where you know my son had nobody and um, he actually went through um, a really dark time. He, he went through depression, basically, where um, he would just sit on the couch and cry. Um, and we couldn't throw anything in the garbage, like, you know, styrofoam plates from, from a meal. We couldn't throw it out. He would just start bawling. Um, I remember one time we took a walk in the bush and wanted to have a fire, but he was just so... He couldn't see fire because that stick was getting destroyed and, and it would be gone. And there was just something in him that couldn't see one more thing being taken away from him. And we just praise God that he's worked past that and he's moved past that and and God has healed him of that. And yet, um, I think I can say that our kids have been through more in in their short time than a lot of kids go through in a lifetime. Um, As well, there was something that... Um, I'll just mention it once, but it was really a reality throughout all of this, is that I didn't really feel peace about the missionary situation of receiving money. And I felt like I need to perform to this level because people are, are giving me money. And I felt like I need to have results, and I need to you know, be able to... And I never felt like I was, it was okay for me to rest. And this was something that really um, took me years and years to really believe that I could rest when people are supporting me, because I just felt like people are really sacrificing to keep me on the field. Um, And this led me to, instead of starting at beginner level, I jumped into intermediate, where I didn't belong. Um, And uh, my first grade was an E minus, and then uh, moved up to an E, and then a D minus, and a D plus, and a C, and finally moved my way throughout that semester to having good grades, to having an A minus. But in the process of that, I put myself under so much pressure and so much stress um, that I ended up giving myself this full body rash uh, called, uh, well, it doesn't matter what it's called. But anyways, I just, my body freaked out and I literally looked like I had chicken pox all over uh, because I was just like stressing so much about passing my grades so that I can get on the mission field so I can tell people about Jesus so I can, you know, just go. Um, And unfortunately, I put a lot of pressure on myself. At that time, um, but it was a good time in its own way. Uh, I did learn French very well and very quickly. By the end of the first semester, I taught a whole uh, sixty-minute class in French. I won't say it was good, but I taught a class in French. And by the time I had done a year and a half, uh, my teacher said I was fluent, and um, I said I had a very bad accent, but I could understand. I could make myself known, uh, and I preached a few sermons at that point and and stuff. Um, and we had really good times. We, there was a sliding hill there. The, we took the kids sliding almost every day. Uh, we tapped trees. We made maple syrup. We, we did make relationships, uh, especially with a lot of the other missionary families. And some of those relationships really have stuck to this day through Facebook. And we had a lot of really fun cultural experiences. 
So then we got on a plane and went to Africa. And we did a lot of really great stuff in Africa. Now, we were only there for seven months, just over half a year. And um, as I go through all this, I, I almost feel like I need to remind you again, we were just there for seven months. Uh, often when I just tell people what all happened and what all we did, it seems like we were there for a few years. Um, but it was a very, very compact amount of time. Uh, so in that time, I, I taught two classes. Um, and just my wife uh, taught a cooking class. I preached a few times at a local African church and was adopted as one of their pastors. And they took that very seriously, that I was part of the, the leadership there. Um, I mentored and um, really became invested in the lives of a few of my students. Um, I witnessed and really became, um, got a really close friend who was a seeker. And we had many, many deep, long conversations at my place and at his place. Um, we pushed into the missionary community. The missionary community was hard to get into. Um, they too were kind of used to people coming and going, and I think they kind of wanted to see whether we were going to stay or not. Um, but we pushed until we got into the community. And we learned how to survive in Africa, which was no mean feat. Uh, learning how to eat, learning where to find food, learning how to survive the heat. Um, all these things took a tremendous amounts of time and energy um, to figure out some of the things we never really figured out, but we survived, learned how to survive. Um, and there's a lot of things about Africa that still really call to me. That that there, there was something that came alive in my ministry there that, in some senses, um, I felt like my whole life was leading up to that point, and it was it was perfect. Um, you know, I had this call from when I was eight to be a missionary and to go to the field. And uh, that was really realized. Um, I had, it was a romantic and exciting journey. You know, we post pictures on Facebook and people were, you know, really excited about it. And it was really interesting, uh, the things that we were doing. Even the hard times, um, people were interested in that. We had, I had a really great connection with um, just about everybody, like the African churches and the African students. Uh, people really liked me. Um, which doesn't happen all, all the time. <laughs> but uh, it just happened that it, it seemed like it, there was a good connection. Uh, something about my personality or my history, something just, just seemed to connect with, with that particular culture. Um, but there was a lot of really hard times in Africa. Um, we uh, had a significant difficulty with... Um, well, the main one was heat. Uh, it's hot there. In uh, it's just south of the Sahara Desert, uh, where we were, um, and uh, it was um, it was hard for me. It was hard for everybody, um, but for my wife, it was close to fatal. Um, she never adjusted to the heat from the moment she stepped off the plane um, to the moment she stepped back on the plane. She was always in physical crisis um, with the heat. Uh, there's heat exhaustion and there's heat stroke. Heat exhaustion is dizziness, uh, sweaty palms, lightheadedness, confusion, nausea. Um, heat stroke is where you die uh, and your, your organs shut down and you die. Uh, and you guys in the States are more aware of this that you know this happens at, at football games and various things. If you don't drink enough, you can go into heat stroke. Us from Canada, I mean, we're way up north. We've never even, we're not even aware of this. Like, we hadn't even really experienced heat. 
uh, until we went to Africa. I mean, we were aware of it, and we asked people, and they said, oh, you'll adjust. You'll adjust. Um, everybody adjusts. And most people do, and I did. Uh, in fact, by the time we were done, but, but by the time that I had been there about five months, we'd gone through a hotter season, and we're in a cooler season where it was only, you know, 25, well, you guys are Fahrenheit, uh, 60 or something. I don't know. It was only pretty hot <laughs> during the day instead of ridiculously hot. And I was wearing my toque and a sweater because I was feeling cold uh, because my body had just adjusted, whereas my wife was always uh, unable to cope. And so pretty quickly in our time, we realized this isn't going to be a long-term thing. This isn't going to work out. Um, and that was probably the hardest decision that we have ever made um, because all these things were, call- were pulling at my heart of this is where I fit. This is what God has called us to do. Um, we're ready to sacrifice. We're ready to lay down our lives. And yet, my wife can't live here. Um, and in hindsight, we've, if anything, wished that we had left sooner because really her life was in danger every day. Um, there were a lot of other things. Uh, we had an issue with... Um, trying to put our kid into school, having some cultural differences with uh, Canadian school system and American. And he was rejected from school, which was hard for him and hard for us. Um, this was during the Ebola outbreak. And there was somebody with Ebola that, that was discovered near the border. Uh, and so we never really knew if, if that was coming or not. Boko Haram was agitating down in Nigeria and, of course, ISIS up in Syria, which wasn't all that far away across the Sahara Desert. Um, On three different occasions, one of our children seemed to be lost in the city. Uh, I won't go into the details, but uh, if you can imagine thinking for a few minutes or actually an hour one time that we don't know where our child is, um, it was terrifying, uh, and these things just came through cultural misunderstandings and various things. We were sick almost all the time, at least one of us was, um, just our bodies trying to handle the heat, uh, lots of different bugs, different things like, um, what was it, scarlet fever or something like that. It's like something that, that sometimes you get it here, but over there it's just like everybody gets it all the time. You just kind of, there's fevers that you're just passing around all the time. Um, and in the midst of all that, um, is when uh, I had an accident. Um, I was pulling into our driveway and I got cut off by a motorbike and I was kind of in between the lanes where I shouldn't have been and a motorbike came zipping at me, going way too fast and just clipped the front of my, my car and he went slipping off. And um, Long story short, um, I sent the, the family home in the car, which I knew was illegal, but I just said, get out of this situation and I tried to deal with the motorbike driver as best I could. Um, I didn't know how to handle the situation correctly, and I handled it, mismanaged the situation to the point where he called up a bunch of buddies, and uh, they all hauled me off to a small room where they threatened me. Um, And the Lord delivered me from that uh, very quickly, within about five minutes of me being in that room. uh, There were some other missionaries that were able to insert themselves in the situation and advocate for me. And after a few hours, we were able to go over to the police station and eventually to uh, go back home. Um, But that situation gave me uh, significant post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, My eye was twitching kind of nonstop. I couldn't sleep. I was just not right. Um, I was able to call up a counselor 
Um, cell phone reception actually worked quite well, so I had a good call with uh, with a good counselor. Um, the main thing he told me was, Josiah, I think you did. I think you did the right thing. I think that's what you should have done to get your family to safety. And based on the information you had, I don't think. I think you did. You made good decisions. Um, and that really helped because I just. What was so difficult for me was just running over in my mind all the things I had done wrong. Um, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. Um, but and thinking about if I had done this, I could have died. My children could have been been fatherless, and and kind of those what ifs and and all those sorts of things. And to hear somebody say, "No, I think I think you actually did pretty good. Uh, you made the right decisions," uh, really took a big load off. Although. Um, I must say this is probably the first time that I've ever talked about it without feeling a lot of anxiety. Um, I had, you know, dreams about it and, you know, often uh, difficulty thinking about it. It's definitely something that's still a part of me. Um, In our last week there, um, there was uh, a cartoon published of Mohammed in um, the Charlie Hebdo magazine in France. And uh, the Muslim world was outraged. No, wait, I have the order of this wrong. Um, the Charlie Hebdo magazine was known for publishing um, uh, cartoons of Muhammad. And so a Muslim came into their magazine and, and shot a bunch of people. And to show that they weren't afraid, um, the magazine published another even more offensive uh, cartoon of Muhammad and, and publishing cartoons of of Muhammad is specifically forbidden in the in the Quran and it's a big no no um, and so Muslims worldwide rioted and in uh, in the town of which was close by uh, they burned about thirty buildings including many churches and other buildings and they said we're going to do the same thing uh, this was on a Thursday they said we're going to do the same thing in Friday in and we didn't really believe them. You hear these sorts of rumors all the time. Uh, but it turns out that they were very serious. And uh, within about uh, three hours, 60 buildings were burned, including... Um, no, that was 60 churches were burned, including uh, and a lot of other buildings, including hotels and um, cell phone uh, uh, buildings, anything that had to do with France, anything that had to do with Christianity um, and alcoholism strangely, were burned. Um, And so we had to leave our home and go to uh, a neighboring place where we were more safe because we were living right next to a church. Um, And uh, a few days later, um, I took took a a trip out and visited some of these churches and took pictures uh, so I could tell people back home what was going on and so that we could get some support out to help our brothers out in Africa. Um... And it was during this time that my wife, with all this going on, uh, she had started having anxiety attacks uh, as her body was trying to cope with the constant heat. Um, But with this last thing, her anxiety was just getting more and more elevated. Uh, And there was a demonstration right in front of our home uh, because we lived on a major street. And she just started having another panic attack. And uh, we were scheduled to leave in a week. Um, But with all that this was going on, and this was now, this has been a few days, and now it was Thursday night. And this was Thursday, and I said, if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen tomorrow on Friday, which is, of course, the, the Muslim holy day of the week. Um, and I, I said, why don't we just look into how much it'll cost to bump our tickets up six days? And it turns out it, it was only going to cost $30 each to bump the tickets up, and we said, let's do it. And so we packed up our whole house in 
Um, within 14 hours from then, we were on the plane heading home. Um, and that was probably, it was a very painful way to end it all because um, I really connected with the suffering of my brothers in Africa. Um, I was slated to preach that Sunday at the church. And with all that went on, um, our, our church was one of the few that wasn't burned. I had a sermon right on my heart about loving our enemies and love being more powerful than the sword. Um, and uh, I found out as I said goodbye to people prematurely, earlier than they thought, uh, they were really disappointed because they were all ready to do a big uh, feast in our in our honor. Um, and uh, I really felt like I was just leaving my brothers in a time of need. Um, and I really struggled with feelings of cowardice, honestly, um, because I was safe when my brothers were really struggling. Um, we came back to Canada uh, really in a rough way. Um, and uh, I don't want to say... Um, there wasn't a lot of support. Let's just put it that way. Um, we had some time in the guest house. Uh, we went back to our home town. Um, and uh, in hindsight, what would have been smart would be for us to just say, okay, we're done for a bit. Just go home. Just be done. Um, but I felt at that point, like, if we stop now, the missions thing is over. And at this point, we spent a year raising our support, year and a half l- learning French, I can't see it be done in just seven months. And I said, I, I want to keep going. I, I still feel like I have life in me to keep doing this. Um, and uh, so uh, we looked for ministries that included French and some sort of teaching. And we found something in, in Quebec that would that was campus ministry. It seemed to kind of fit. And um, so within about four months, we left our hometown again, went out to Quebec uh, we bought a house, we furnished it, uh, we bought a dog. We, um, in hindsight, I was kind of trying to like catch up with everything. You know, like all my friends had the house and the white picket fence, and I wanted that too. And I wanted to just feel like this whole African nonsense didn't even happen. Um, and uh, we got the ministry going, um, so we started going to our, our church. And uh, with September coming, you know, I just jumped into it. It... When I started hearing more about the ministry, my wife and I both thought, oof, um, I'm not sure this is really going to work, you know. I mean, I'm a teacher. I love books. I love ideas, which is why I thought, well, I'll do campus ministry. Uh, it's ideas. It's apologetics. It's, um, but, you know, the reality is campus ministry is a lot of yippity-yip and, and jumping around and doing fun things with kids and, uh, well, with, you know, with university students. I guess they're not kids, but uh, we tend to call them that. Um, what's that? They're kids. They're kids, yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so we jumped into that. Um, again, this was a lonely time for my wife and kids because, um, you know, we went back to the church we, we attended as uh, as language students, but we just couldn't make friends. You know, we thought now that we're not students, people will reach out to us, and they didn't. And we would invite people out, and they would literally say, I think in about four months I would have time. Ask me then. Uh, that's about as far as it got. 
Um, and in hindsight, I was working very hard, again, feeling as though I need to legitimize my you know, being on support. I need to work hard. I need to have results. I felt very ashamed any time that I wasn't working hard. And about this time, reading break, so we, we, um, we worked Octo- September, October, mid-October um, was reading break for the students, and we went to visit a church. Um, and uh, things seemed to be going well, although my wife and I were not communicating as much as we normally do. Uh, she seemed to be more down, but I was fine. I was totally fine. Um, until I got ready to uh, do a presentation on Africa. And as I was getting things ready, um, rummaging through some of the stuff I was going to put on the display table, I took out a keychain that um, my seeker friend from Africa had made for me, handcrafted leather uh, keychain. And suddenly this wave of emotion hit me, uh, not all good emotions. And I realized I'm in real trouble. I'm not sure I can talk about this um, I did talk about it, and I did a fairly good job talking about Africa and everything like that. Uh, And then I went in the bathroom and just bawled my eyes out, um, cleaned myself up as best as I could and, you know, tried to be the happy missionary. Um, But at that point, we realized, you know what, Uh, we're in trouble. Um, And my wife at this point was really struggling with uh, depression, and through the course of helping her with that through counselors and stuff, we realized, actually, I am struggling with burnout. Um, and so we backed off from, um, from our ministry. We took a lot of counseling uh, between the two of us. We took about 100 hours of counseling, single and couple counseling. We got a lot of things sorted out. We found a lot of peace. Um, God led us to an English-language church. I felt like a fraud going to an English-language church when I was going to work with the French. Um, But it was there that my kids finally found community and friends. And the first day that we went to that church, somebody invited us out for supper. And we had been in Quebec by this point for two years, and nobody had ever invited us out for supper, for lunch. Um, And that to us was like, well, done. (laughs) I mean, if people are actually going to hang out with us, then we want to go here. Um, That was kind of a no-brainer as far as church decisions. Um, And flash forward to the present. um, I mean, maybe I should continue that, you know, we had really serious serious conversations at this point. Was Quebec a mistake? Should we have come here in the first place? And it kind of seemed like, you know, we weren't making decisions from a good point, good, healthy mental space at that point. Um, But it seemed as though God was calling us to stay stay in Quebec, and um, we called up some of our mentors. We have a great network of people back home. Um, And the one thing that stuck with me is, you know, God often calls us to do the thing that's right in front of you. Just do the thing that's right in front of you really well. And uh, the thing that was right in front of me at the time was I still had my blog, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to start working on that again. And I started podcasting, if you know what that is. Um, And uh, I just... Started preaching in my local church, recording podcasts, and eventually continuing just with the Bible studies on campus. Not the whole, you know, doing youth retreats and doing events and, and you know, high octane sort of stuff, but just Bible studies, uh, especially with a more intellectual bent to them. And um, over the years since then, um, 
it gets a little bit hard to explain exactly what we do because what I have found is there's a huge need for teaching in Quebec. And churches love for me to come, do one really in-depth sermon, and then go away. Um, and, you know, things I've, I've tackled are if Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, why do we call him the Son of God? Um, or uh, what's the difference between Protestants and Catholics or things like that? As well, my online ministry, my podcasts have really just got more and more popular. Um, and I've done some video stuff as well. Uh, and totally random people that I don't know know me because of what I've done online. Um, and uh, just this last week, I had somebody come up. I had a number of people. Well, we had a bunch of people over at our home. And like number of people were saying how much my podcast and my online stuff had really blessed them. And questions they felt like they couldn't ask in public, I was addressing um, during the podcast. And so they really felt that that was a blessing to them. Um, my little Bible study on campus that I felt was just this tiny thing, just a little bit that I could handle, has turned into this really solid group of 9 to 14 kids that come every week and that just really want to know what's the meat and potatoes, what's the deep answers to our questions. Um, and uh, it's, it's just really been a rewarding thing. And our little church that we went to, that we are going to, which is a church plant that's been in existence for about seven years, um, they just love it when I preach, and I preach about every six weeks to a month. Um, and every time, people just appreciate so much what I have to share. Uh, I also volunteer at Scouts. Um, what else do I do? I always forget something. Um, but all the things that I do, I love. I love doing them. And um, I love Quebec. I really, really love Quebec. It's the culture and the heritage of my wife. Um, it's, it's got such a rich and a complex history. I don't know if you guys know, but it was you know, more Catholic than the Pope until, up till, until about 50, the 1950s. Um, I said that in all seriousness, uh, Quebec was this funny little, little place in Canada that was the English kind of left it to its own as long as they paid their taxes. Um, and that led to a situation where the Catholic Church really took a, a role of leadership within the within Quebec to where you had a situation that really if we looked at it we would say that's that was still happening like libraries were still not allowed like the catholic priest was still telling people in the 1950s you're not having enough kids so you're going to be excluded from the community like people were really getting the strap from the catholic priests um protestant missionaries were really getting thrown in prison like all this stuff was happening just 60 years ago in Quebec um until Quebec kind of en masse, kind of as one person said, enough is enough, and kicked the church out of everything, every aspect of their personal lives. All all the schools became public schools. All the hospitals became public hospitals. Um, Church attendance went from something like 90% down to something like 5%. Within a a decade, Um, and even things like marriage, you don't get married in Quebec anymore. What does the church have to do with, you know, my sexuality or, or my personal business? And so in Quebec, you don't, women don't change their last name. And even if you're married, you refer to, your, to one another as boyfriend, girlfriend. Because you don't want to offend people that are, um, you don't want to seem like you're better than people that aren't married. And so even when my wife and I go hang out with very Quebecois people, I won't say ma femme, I'll say ma blonde or ma conjointe to say my, my long-term girlfriend. Um, because I'm just trying to be culturally appropriate. Um, 
And that's, that's kind of what the baby boomers did, is rejected everything. Threw out the baby with the bathwater. Generation X is a mixed bag. Some people in Generation X hate the church. Some people just don't really care. Um, but the millennials are searching. Because the millennials are, perhaps for the first time, if you think of the French people all the way back through history, this is perhaps the first generation of French people that was raised with no answers to deep questions in life. There's not even a bad answer. There's no answer. Um, there's a, a documentary put on called uh, Le Nefrage, The Happy Shipwreck. Uh, I think it was done by, by CBC or something. It's a secular show. Uh, but a documentary on, on the Quebec, Quebecois people. And it said this is, um, this is the first generation that when a child asks their father, Dad, what happens after I die? Or what's the purpose of life? Um, or why should I do good instead of bad? Their father will literally say, I don't know. I have no answers for you. Or turn to art or turn to nature. Um, there's a few uh, songs, since we're on the topic, this wasn't part of the notes, but uh, Garrett said to let the spirit lead. Uh, I really love listening to music in French. And uh, there's one song called uh, Degeneration, Degenerations. Also a play on word because Degeneration, it sounds like the generations. Uh, but it talks about how every stanza has, has four generations in it. Your great-great-grandparents, they lived on a big acreage, but they were poor. Your grandfather, he was rich. And then your father wasted all that money, and now you, you're poor. Um, and the next stanza talks about how, you know, you used to have land, and you used to have property, and then your, your father moved to the city, and now you're sitting in a one-bedroom apartment that's too cold in the winter, and you're reading books about voluntary simplicity to, to try and resist the urge to hold up a bank. Um, and then the stanza that always gets to me is uh, your great-great-grandmother had 14 kids. Your great-grandmother had almost as many. Your grandmother had four. That was enough. Your mother didn't want you. You were an accident. Can you imagine that? Um, man, I'm so emotional today. Um, but that line always gets me. And, um, and the song continues that... Um, and you, my sister, you play around. And when you do something stupid, you save yourself through an abortion. And yet at night you wake up because you dream of a, ta- a large table surrounded by kids. And the last verse of the song says, um, talks about dancing and how, but our, our people always have known how to dance. And it goes through the generations of dancing and says, and so you young man, don't sit in front of the TV tonight. We're gonna, put on your good shoes because we're going to go out dancing. And kind of the point of the song is trying to end on a happy note. What's the purpose of life? What's good? What, where can we go from here? Put on your good shoes and let's go dancing. Let's just, just try and enjoy it. Just try and enjoy your life. Uh, there's another song called Il faut que tu saches. You must know. It, it must be that you know. Um, and the, the singer, Fred Pellerin, very, very famous uh, Quebecois folk singer, um, goes through all these really important questions of life. What is, what is the purpose of life? Um, what is sex? What is the, the purpose of having family names and heritages and, and all these things? And then at the end he says, because um, every refrain says, you must know, you must know, you must know. And then at the end he says, because me and mine, 
We haven't known. We don't know what the answers are to these questions. And the song ends with, just continue to ask the questions for the next generation. That's the best you can do. Just keep asking. Because we don't know. And the last song I'm thinking of is uh, by a group called Les Cowboys Fringants. Um, Frisky Cowboys. Um, and it's called Shooting Stars. And it goes through all, the, all the, the ages of life. How we were young kids. We were you know, on the swings going home doing paper airplanes and cartoons. And then we get older. We have you know, the, the mortgage and the pot belly and the little kids. And, and we, we go on. And, but then it asks, Mais au bout du chemin, dites-moi qu'est-ce qui va rester? On va trouver qu'on est juste les étoiles filantes. At the end of the road, tell me what's going what's to be there. What's at the end of the road? And he said, we're going to find out that we're just shooting stars. We're just shooting stars going through the night. And so this is what absolutely grabs me about Quebec, is these people that are looking for answers. And they, they're looking everywhere except for the church because the church has let them down. But they need Jesus. Okay, I'm past my time. I was going to try so hard not to pass my time. Um, but I do want to take just a little bit more of your time. Um, based on my story, what are four things you can do to help missionaries? I would encourage you to seek out silent missionaries. When your missionary drops off a map, they're doing their newsletters pretty regularly. All of a sudden you realize, you know, it's been a long time. It's been like six months in a year why why are they silent you know when we were going through burnout and depression I couldn't tell anybody what was going on um, find out why your missionaries suddenly went silent maybe they're just really busy and that's also a need for prayer legitimize the in-between times raising support is missions Some of our friends never even got to the field, but they sacrificed tremendous energy and life and time trying to raise support, even if they never got there. And that's valid. Um, times of furlough. It's not a vacation. It's work. It's work. Uh, and learning language, etc. Send care packages. You have no idea how much it means to somebody to receive a care package. Anything that says home when you're far away is tremendously valuable. And honor the wounded, the fallen, and the returning. It's been said that the church is the only army that shoots their own wounded. And I haven't exactly experienced that. But I would encourage you that when people, not just to glorify people that demonstrate strength and have the success stories, but honor people that have sacrificed and have tried, even if it looks like they haven't succeeded a whole lot. So... Um, I think I'm just going to end there. I don't know how to end, so I'm going to pray. Thank you, Lord, for um, the goodness you have shown to us and in my family, and you have been good to us. And for the bad times and the hard times, I know you've been there as well. And I just thank you for considering me worthy. To suffer. Uh, along with you in that. Um, and I just pray for the rest of this conference that um, you would speak through the people that are, are here to share. And um, we just thank you, Lord, that your gospel is hope and your gospel is truth. And people need to hear what you did for them and how much you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.